Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today I have two guests, Gregory R. Lanier, who's Assistant Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary Orlando in Florida, and William Ross, who's an Assistant Professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Greg and Will are on the show today to talk about their new project, a hugely ambitious an exciting project, a massive project, a new edition of the Septuagint called Septuaginta, a reader's edition published jointly by Hendrickson Publishers and the Deutsche Bibel Gesellschaft. Two volumes, beautifully bound, laid out in such an attractive way. Greg and Will, congratulations on the edition and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Crawford. Good, it's great to have you here. Before we begin, Greg, first of all, could you tell us about yourself? Uh, Sure, yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, I teach New Testaments as well as Greek and actually do a an elective, uh, some preaching classes, so forth, here at RTS Orlando. I've been here for uh, three and a half years. I'm also a part-time pastor at a Presbyterian church in the area. Um, Will and I met each other while we were in England and have been working with each other on a bunch of different things ever since. So we both studied in the UK. I'm married uh, to Kate and have three daughters uh, who are nine, seven, and three. And so uh, a good, good phase of life. Good. Sounds busy. And Will, what's your story? Yeah, uh, well, I, as you said, I'm assistant professor of Old Testament here in Charlotte. I uh, teach um, a couple of different Old Testament survey classes, but I also teach uh, the Hebrew curriculum, and they even allow me to dip in uh, and teach some Greek uh, every once in a while as well. Um, So that's a lot of fun. They let me do that because of this Septuagint project in many ways. but uh, I, too, am ordained, um, although I'm not actively serving at a church at the moment. And uh, I'm married to my wife, Kelly, and uh, we have three sons, although we actually have a, a daughter, a little girl, on the way this summer. So that's going to be exciting. Well, that's exciting. Well, I wish you well with that project, too. So <laughs> you, you, you met when you were in Cambridge as postgraduate students. Is that is that correct? Yes. yes. And how did you begin to think together about, the, about what has resulted in this extraordinary two-volume edition of the Subduagent? Sure, yeah, I can take that one. I think it actually began either with an email or a text. I can't recall uh, which one, but it was several years ago. We both came back from the Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting, and it was that particular year where the uh, the new BHS Hebrew Reader's Edition, there had already been one by Zondervan, but the new one by Hendrickson and the German Bible Society had come out. And uh, I remember uh, texting or emailing Will saying, hey, is anyone working on uh, a Septuagint version of this? And, you know, because Will has more connections in that world. And he wasn't aware of anything. We said, in our foolish exuberance, uh, well, why not give it a shot? And so uh, one thing led to another. And, I, you know, I had been, I'd been there for a year, I think, before Will arrived, but we'd gotten to know each other uh, at Tyndale House where we were studying and started connecting to people and sort of made our way to Hendrickson and um, they were excited to take the project on and four years later we were done so uh, a lot happened in between but that was the basic genesis of the idea essentially just seeing uh, some interest in the other readers editions on the market uh, recognizing that this particular project would be enormous but uh, worth pursuing and so we we began work. So well well, Greg has just said it's an enormous project Uh, how many pages are there in these two volumes? Oh, that is a great question. Uh, let me just pull them off my shelf right here. Well, I think it's something like 3,300, I believe, is the total. Yeah, volume one's somewhere in the 1,500 page range. Or, sorry, that's volume two, and volume one's about 17. 
hundred pages. So they're they're pretty hefty volumes. So it's well over three thousand pages of, of work. And uh, you reckon you did that in around about four years? Yeah, yeah. We went. Uh, I guess it was just about January of twenty fifteen that we really started going, produced some samples for Hendrickson. Uh, the contract came later that spring. And we really got rolling, I think it was in the summertime of 2015, mm. and um, just went pretty steadily at it, uh, producing texts, each one of us working on it steadily throughout the week, chipping away at it. And, uh, yeah, I think it was almost exactly four years by the summer, just this past summer, uh, that we saw the final proofs, and it, and it went to print. Well, it's, it's a remarkable achievement in terms of uh, the, the, the duration of the project. Well, can we stay with you to help us think about recent rise of interest in Septuagint? What kinds of things have been going on in Septuagint studies in terms of textual studies, perhaps, or linguistic studies? Yeah, well, it's a big question, and there's a couple of different answers, I think. Um, it's become almost a commonplace within Septuagint scholarship to say Septuagint scholarship is is gaining attention and becoming more popular. And I, I think there's some degree we just like to think that we're becoming more popular in general. <laughs> um, but but there is truth to it in the sense that um, the scholarship surrounding Septuagint has, has grown and proliferated in many ways. Um, there's a couple of key things, I think, related to that. One, I think, big aspect of it has been the uh, emergence of the New English Translation of the Septuagint, known as NETS. Uh, this was published in the 2000s, uh, somewhere in the 2000s, I think, uh, by a team of scholars that this was a project that had long needed to appear. It was a fresh translation of the Septuagint from Greek that hadn't happened in over a century. Uh, so that being on the market, I think, generated some attention. Uh, similarly, there were two specialized lexicons for the Septuagint that emerged, uh, published by uh, Lust, Einigel, and Halsby on the one hand, and by uh, Miraoka on the other hand. Those both came out in the 2000s, early 2000s as well. So all those resources um, generate a lot of broader access and availability among biblical scholarship to Septuagint in general. Um, and obviously, all of those things generated a lot of linguistic research in themselves. And I think there was a, a growing awareness, too, that kind of dovetailed with uh, more interest in New Testament use of the Old Testament and awareness of the way that the Greek Old Testament plays into that question that I think kind of linked up with this greater accessibility and more resources, primary uh, or reference work resources for Septuagint it really helped the discipline uh, get more kind of footholds for people to get involved, become interested and find out more because Septuagint is quite a, it's a diverse field. Uh, there's a lot of different aspects of it. It's a complicated subject. Uh, there's a lot of qualifications that you have to make all the time when you talk about quote unquote, the Septuagint. Um, so I think it's just, a part of it is just people being interested in in an unusual topic, an area that kind of falls in between the testaments uh, historically and textually and linguistically. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting questions to ask, almost a wide open uh, path for research. A lot of doctoral students have gone into Septuagint scholarship, as I did, uh, because there's just so many questions that are open uh, 
and research initiatives that are just uh, ready to be undertaken. So hmm. I think that's, you know, just a synopsis, hmm. maybe. And I would, I would only add, I think, I think you get maybe one other factor, at least on the sort of church layperson popular side, because there is very much a kind of esoteric Septuagint's core of scholarship, but there's also the kind of periphery, and that would be uh, the use of the old and the new. I think as we've seen in the past 20, 30 years, a sort of explosion in that work from the New Testament side that has very much popularized this mythical beast of the Septuagint that, that folks have become more interested in, uh, even, even sort of in the uh, the pew level or uh, sort of the educated layperson who who reads the footnotes in their NIV or ESV and sees what is the Septuagint thing, so they mm. they start looking at it. So mm. that might be another factor that has sort of contributed. It was certainly from my angle that that's how I got uh, interested in it. So mm. well, Greg, if we can stay with you just to to, to to pursue this question a little bit further, I suppose one of the challenges of working in any area of Hellenistic Greek is that new the, the, the linguistic data is really intensely gathered from New Testament studies or in New Testament studies. Is, is that a challenge for scholars who want to work in the Septuagint? You know, you're, you're pushing back both earlier and later than we might conventionally date the composition of New Testament texts. In one sense, no, because uh, you know, one, one of the, I guess, convenient factors uh, is that the broad corpus of Greek translations of the Hebrew Scriptures plus the additional writings, commonly known as the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha, they're broadly from the same chunk of, of Greek in its sort of developmental life cycle as uh, the New Testament, the Hellenistic Greek or Koine, Common Greek. Uh, and so in many respects, when you open up, if, if, you, if all you've studied are kind of two semesters of, of quote-unquote New Testament Greek, which itself is a misnomer, uh, but if that's what you've done in Bible college or what have you, and you flip open Genesis, you're in a basically similar world. Uh, it's not like you're reading the Iliad, which is going to feel very foreign, even though the alphabet looks the same. And so in many respects, there's not uh, a huge difference. That said, of course, language does develop, and um, and there, there are some barriers. A, a big barrier, uh, more than anything, I would suppose, is the vocabulary stock that you're dealing with. Uh, you know, unfortunately, in a short period of time of learning, Again, quote unquote, New Testament Greek, which is where most people start, at least in the biblical studies world. Y you learn a couple hundred vocabulary words and obviously you feel like you know everything at that point, which is, <laughs> you know, typically, uh, you have a wake up call that comes later. But when you, when you flip from that to Isaiah and you're like, Hey, I'll go read Greek Isaiah. And all of a sudden you're not recognizing anything anymore mm -hmm. other than, you know, the article and some pronouns and a couple words that pop out here and there. And so, so in that respect, the vocabulary, um, though, though again, it's from the same, essentially the same, uh, strata of Greek. Um, it, it can become quite a problem uh, very quickly. I think acquisition of vocabulary to be able to access the Septuagint was really one of the key factors that led to this project. Oh. Is that it looks like Greek, it smells like Greek, it seems kind of familiar, but you don't know but like 10% of the words on the page. Oh. Uh, and so it can be quite a humbling experience to open up you know proverbs in greek and feel like you know what you're doing uh and and then you you question everything you ever learned it's kind of like opening hebrews in greek and realizing that you don't actually know greek very well sure just just because you can read john so, so we, we we sometimes get told that uh, there's what is it 5446 greek words in the new testament or some distinct greek words 
the Septuagint vocabulary is much bigger than that. Then that's the point you're making. Yeah, well, and partly because it's just a lot, lot longer of a corpus. You know, it's something like four to five times uh, in word count and length, and so that alone will give you a much broader vocabulary. I think if you exclude proper nouns, uh, if I recall, there's something like eleven thousand discrete uh, lemmas in the, you know, at least in Rolf Sandhart's edition, which is our basis, something like that, and so. Uh, and then if you take the proper nouns out of the Greek New Testament side, you would be down to something like three-ish thousand, if I'm not, I'm at maybe four thousand, something like that. So, yeah, you're looking at double, if not triple, the number of discrete words that you have to grapple with. Um, so it can, it, it can become quite disorienting when you make that move. Huh. Greg, we're going to stay with you to, to think about the length of this project. You've already cautioned us about uh, referring to the Septuagint in the singular. And the, the two volumes that we have here, all 3,000 plus pages of them, are, your introduction tells us, about 20% longer than most translations of the Hebrew Bible. Why is that? Well, part of that is in general, although this isn't a hard and fast rule, uh, translating from Hebrew into Greek typically is going to expand the word count. uh, And there's debate about how you count words in Hebrew. But either way, that alone will give you a sort of greater girth. But the bigger factor is that uh, when when you start talking about the Greek scriptures, the Greek Old Covenant scriptures, however you want to call it. Again, that's one of the one of the challenges. Uh, you're also including two other components that uh, often get missed. One are going to be what are what are called double text or, uh, you know, different traditions that uh, there's there's not a, a clear consensus on which one is the quote unquote original. And so that would include, for instance, uh, Daniel, which we present in our edition in two different forms, the traditionally known uh, Old Greek Daniel and then the so-called Theodosian Daniel. There's uh, two editions or, or two sort of parallel versions of Judges. There's partial parallel versions within Joshua. Tobit has parallel editions and that kind of thing. So that, that increases uh, the scope when you have when you're essentially having two versions of Daniel uh, as an example. On top of that, uh, and this is of course, uh, historically, uh, a fairly debated thing, even as far back as Origen, Augustine, and Jerome, we see them sort of individually debating this, but there are additional writings that are not part of the traditionally received Hebrew canon, the 39 in English counting, 22 in other ways of counting it, uh, you know, from Genesis, you know, the prophets, the uh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, you have on top of that the so-called deuterocanonical or apocryphal writings that are in various ways received by the Roman Catholic Church and by the various flavors of the Orthodox Church, but have not historically been received by the Protestant Church. And so that would include First and Second Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, the Wisdom of Ben Sira, um, additions to Ezra, some additional books of Daniel like Susanna. Uh, Bell and the Dragon, Tobit, Judith, which is my personal favorite as the father of daughters because Judith features the princess who uh, gets dressed up and goes and beheads the pagan oppressor uh, to win the battle for the Israelites, which is a pretty awesome role model. Uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but but I do mention Judith occasionally. I, they like Esther more now than anything, but uh, but I'm like, but there's also Judith who cuts off this dude's head. So anyway, you have those writings as well that uh, that sort of we included those in this edition uh, because they've historically been part of the, the Greek corpus. And so that, that also makes it longer. So, so altogether, this ends up being essentially 
the length of the Old and New Testament combined. It is very big, and one of the one of the things that makes it big is your um, decision to to duplicate presentation of different textual traditions. Um, right. how, how do you actually do that on the page? Yeah, so whenever we run into these situations, either within a book or distinct books that themselves are presented in, in two different ways, uh, we display one uh, version, so to speak, one tr one translation or one, one Greek edition on the left side, and then it's uh, analog on the right-hand side. And we did our best to the extent that we could to parallel them at a at least a paragraph level. Most of the time that works pretty well. Sometimes when they are extremely different, uh, it becomes almost impossible to do so. Uh, but we tried to allow the reader to be able to track and say, okay, this paragraph in the old Greek edition, you know, I can, I can sort of look across the page and see what's different in the, the alternative form. And so we try to help them navigate that, uh, looking from the left to the right. And so at times it was, it was, it was more of a burden on our typesetter. Uh, it was fairly straightforward for us. I know it was a bit of a headache for him. Uh, but we, we were pleased with the result. It's not meant to be a sort of synopsis that allows you to do a lot of intense text critical comparison, but if not, but it does at least provide a way for you to, uh, kind of a starting point to be able to do that comparative work. So, mm -hmm. um, you still want to consult the, the proper critical editions, but it, uh, at least get, get, gets you going in that direction. Absolutely. Um, well, can I ask you just reflect on this issue of duplication or multiplicity or variety? From a theological perspective, um, Greg and Will, you, you both teach in the Reformed Theological Seminary system, which has got certain kinds of confessional commitments about the transmission and preservation of Scripture. So as you worked on this project, uh, Will, how did you conceive of your work as relating to the confessional commitments you have about textual preservation? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Uh, I have students who ask the same question, and I, I spend a fair bit of time pondering this question, too, as I deal with, uh, with the text of the Old Testament, not only in Hebrew, but also, or maybe especially in Greek, because you do get these dual traditions, as Greg was saying, that show up. And uh, my own doctoral work was focused in the book of Judges, uh, and the book of Judges, especially in the Greek tradition, has particularly complicated textual history. So part of my work was involved with looking at the ways in which the two streams, the two textual traditions of the book of Judges in Greek were related to one another, not so much uh, text critically, although that was involved, but more to, uh, terms in terms of language and updating. Um, so I did a lot of thinking about that uh, which involves obviously a historical process, you know, and so for the perspective of my research, it was looking at how the language developed and older forms of the language was used uh, in earlier parts of the book. And then that was updated at, at later points for different reasons. Um, so no one is really denying, I don't think that the text of the old Testament uh, went under uh, updating and revisions of various sorts. Okay, so the question really is, uh, what sorts and how much? Um, those are those are two very crucial questions. Uh, a related third crucial question is, how do you know? Um, and I think ultimately we have to, at the end of the day, say 
we will only be able to know on the basis of the evidence at hand. And, and we really don't have a lot of direct evidence for the text of the Old Testament in Hebrew uh, or in Greek, uh, at least not evidence that's prior to the turn of the era. So obviously the big categories for evidence prior to the turn of the era, era are the Dead Sea Scrolls and other evidence from the Judean desert. You get all kinds of stuff in there. You get Greek stuff, you get Hebrew stuff, you get stuff in languages we're not even sure about at this point still. Um, and you see a lot of textual plurality there, uh, different text forms that appear to support, say, the shorter text of Jeremiah or the longer text of Jeremiah, so on and so forth. Overall, overall, you see a very generalized support of the proto-Masoretic tradition, the textual stream that will go on to be solidified as the Masoretic text that you get when you go on Amazon and buy a Hebrew Bible. Most of the evidence that we found is very similar or identical to the, that textual tradition. And there's even been some re- recent research done revisiting the question of the so-called non-aligned text from the Judean desert. These are texts that scholars have looked at, categorized as not fitting with the proto-Masoretic tradition or the Greek tradition or any other tradition like Samaritan or proto-Samaritan. These are these are yet a, a third or a fourth thing that doesn't align with anything else. Hmm. Some recent scholarship has revisited those particular variants, which are judged to be non-aligned, and said, actually, there's even some there's some room for debate on this. It's how do you define alignment? Right? To what extent? Who's in charge of saying what's aligned or not aligned? And categorizing these textual streams. Um, so, so all of that evidence is very difficult to sort through and categorize to even start thinking about. Okay, what are the main categories we're looking at when we start to think about the text of the Old Testament? Um, the existence of numerous traditions, the existence of text forms, does not in itself eliminate the possibility of there being one right text or an authoritative text. Just like in ancient Israelite religion, the existence of multiple practices of Israelite religion that were not according to the Mosaic law doesn't mean there wasn't a Mosaic law or wasn't a sort of authorized way of doing worship. This is kind of ideas. Existence of multiple things doesn't mean there's not one right thing, so to speak. The question is, how do you get back there? So, Will, if, if I can just push in this a little bit further, it's a fascinating answer. If, if we are to use your addition, does that help us recreate the experience of a first century Christian Gentile, let's say, Hellenistic background Greek reader, who is reading the Old Testament in the Septuagint? I probably not. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I guess I want my money. You have to qualify. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have to qualify that a lot of ways. I mean, first of all, you know, it's not like people are walking around with codices with a complete Greek Old Testament mm-hmm. uh, and reading it on their own time. So there's there's technological and access issues that that would make me hesitate to say yes to that to that question. Um, but I, I do think that there's you know, there's pretty good reason to say, like, you know, the Greek Greek Old Testament, Greek Old Testament, the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, 
that we have now are a fair and very similar representation to whatever uh, the New Testament authors, New Testament era Christians were dealing with themselves. You know, there's there's really no no reason to say, oh, they were radically different then because we can compare with New Testament citations and see most of the time when they're clearly citing the Greek version. That's what we have in our Greek version. So 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 it's a yes and no answer. Good. Like most good answers. Uh, Greg, <laughs> the, 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 sub, the subtitle for your project Septuaginta is a reader's edition. What is a reader's edition, and what's your target audience for this work? In essence, what we've done is taken the standard Greek version uh, that most everyone at least starts with, or at least the one that's, frankly, the cheapest, and it's all compiled under one uh, one volume, the uh, sort of mid-2000s version of Alfred Ross, uh, Septuaginta, uh, edited by Robert Hanhart. Um and that's what the sort of standard starting point for most people is. And then if we, you want to go further, you, you pay up and, and, and get the expensive uh, critical edition. Um, and so we took that as our base text. And instead of giving you a an apparatus or a bunch of footnotes that relate to mostly text critical issues, you know, different manuscripts say this here and there. What we give you instead is an apparatus of vocabulary helps. And that um, that has over the past, call it 15 years, that's become a, uh, a new way of uh, helping folks engage with a primary text, that is a text in the original language, um, with things to help them do so. Uh, I think probably the Greek New Testament one was the first one out of the gate, where same format, you take the, the text of the Greek New Testament and you, you give it vocabulary helps on the page so that you're not uh, sort of enslaved to a lexicon, um, and you, you have enough on the page to help you make some progress. Then the Hebrew Bible one came, and then, then ours came. Um, and so that's the basic thing we offer, which is essentially a paper document. Um, people ask me, like, when are you going to produce a Kindle edition? I'm like, that's sort of not the point. <laughs> uh, the point is actually to say there's still tremendous value to sit down with uh, God's Word in, in a primary language, uh, Greek or Hebrew, and uh, interact with it, for those who've learned the language, interact with it, uh, bracketing out the computer where you can just let the computer do the work for you and also not having to have a stack of dictionaries that you lug with you to church or whatever to try to look up words that you don't know. Everything you need, if you know, if you know enough Greek, everything you need is there on the page for you. So you really can immerse yourself uh, in reading uh, which is why it's called a reader's edition. The goal isn't to provide all the data you need for a scholarly journal article hmm. or for a, dis a dissertation. You're going to have to go elsewhere for that, but it is everything you need to sit down and read a chapter of, of Exodus uh, with profit, with, uh, with benefit, not have to sit there and struggle uh, trying to parse every word and look up every word. You get two verses in and you're exhausted. Hmm. Uh, so that's the experience that we want people to have. To, uh, we say at the beginning of the book uh, to really know uh, the language you're trying to work in and to really to approximate what you know this theoretical you know first century Greek speaking early Christian or, or Jew would have experienced in reading the Greek Old Testament. You got to get better at the language, and the only way you really do that is spending a lot of time with it. You can't really do it a, ver a verse a day. 
And so this book is meant to help folks uh, get some enjoyment back in the process where they're actually saying, let me just read the entirety of Genesis in Greek. Let me read the Psalms in Greek, see what that experience is like. And, and we, we're trying to give them the tools to do so. Some of the other things we also put on the page would be English uh, subheaders uh, to at least help you navigate where you are. Um you know, we have obviously versification stuff at the top and all that, but uh, it'll look kind of in a weird way similar to a study Bible in that you're going to have half the page of, of Bible text and half the page of footnotes. It's just a different it's just all in Greek with English uh, definitions. We also provide some parsing help as well for verbs in the footnotes. And so trying to keep it as streamlined as possible, but make it a. Uh, a useful tool where you really, as long as you know a certain number of sort of basic vocabulary, you don't have to sit there and keep looking things up over and over again, but you're separated from a computer that's doing all the work for you. It's engaging your brain to remember stuff and learn stuff. And it was interesting for us, I think, even just doing it, Will and I often joke to just how many random Greek words we now know <laughs> uh, from working on this for such a long period. It's like, man, I know the word for that. I, I don't really know why I know the word for that, but I know that word, even though it's really weird. Um, well, the, the, the very fact you make that observation, Greg, indicates there's a theory of learning behind this project, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. So, so, so just explain to us, what, what is your assumption about how we learn language? Um, well, I mean, to use this properly, you would have to at least do some of the initial grunt work uh, of memorizing vocabulary, memorizing paradigms. I mean, any language you're going to learn, you're going to have to do that, whether it's Spanish, French, German, what have you. Uh, and so there's, that's a kind of necessary part of the process. But at least what I've observed in teaching and seeing students who really come in uh, to a Bible college context wanting to, uh, to, to access the Word of God in the original languages, uh, you know, there's a lot of pain that you go through at first. And then we get you through, call it your third course, and then we, we turn you loose. And you know just enough to do some damage or to do some good, and then we kind of let you go. And I think at least my own personal philosophy of learning for this particular project is what I want to push all my students to do is say, now that you know all the basics, go and start reading every day and never stop. Uh, for the first year, that's going to be hard. But after that, you're going to start to actually know by constant exposure that this verb is this, and it's this particular tense form. And you don't even have to parse it because you just know it because you've seen it a thousand times, and you know that's what it should be. And because so, sort of immersing yourself in it in written form this way, for me, actually makes it a lot more enjoyable. It makes it less grunt work and more enjoyable because you're starting to read it the way it was designed, as opposed to let me take one verse diagram it, parse everything, 15 minutes later, that, what was the point of that? Uh, as opposed to, let me sit down and read this entire thing the way it was originally conveyed. And over time, if I invest my time in it, it starts to really start to click for me. It's just like going, going to live in a foreign country and immerse yourself in the language is the, is the best way to really know the language. Well, this is kind of a, a written way to approximate that. So yeah. that, 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 for me at least, was the, the philosophy. Will may have other things to add. So, so we're going to have 50,000 readers or listeners going out to buy this to become 50,000 readers of, of your text. But what do they do next? They bought it sitting in the desk. What next? Yeah, well, do you want to take that? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that we did as uh, we worked on producing the reader's edition was gather lots of data. Um, Greg's kind of a data nerd, so he set up a big spreadsheet, and we just kind of recorded a lot of different aspects of data as we went along. And I'll take that as a compliment, by the way. <laughs> it is a compliment. It is. Uh, couldn't happen without that, Greg. Um, 
But yeah, some of the things we recorded were obviously, you know, how many chapters, how many verses per chapter for all the books. Uh, we also timed ourselves to see how long it took us to produce, working chapter by chapter, each uh, initial draft of of each chapter. And so it would slowly accumulate. So we got a sense for uh, even just kind of a rough sketch for how, what are the kind of contours of difficulty in the Greek text? And we used all this plus a bunch of other stats too to create an index of difficulty of the Greek. Okay? Mm. And it's, it's about as objective an index as you can get because it's not just like, well, I think this is easy and that's hard. Well, maybe my Greek's better than yours, quote unquote. And so that just feels subjective. This is based on some more objective data, like how many participles uh, per verse, how frequent is the vocab in that particular section of the corpus. We put together this index and ranked it out and rated all the books so that you know kind of what end of the Septuagint, what parts to read first. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of slowly progress from there and test your metal, so to speak. So um, we put this up. We have a dedicated uh, website for the reader's edition. Um, I think, uh, Greg, help me out here. It's lxx.re.wordpress. Is that right? Uh, just L, uh, excuse me, lxxre.wordpress.com. So there's no dot yeah. between the yeah. – Okay, yeah. So, yeah, you can get on there, uh, and you can find our rating and difficulty index – uh, and then I put together a, a year long reading plan mm. that works you through little chunks of the text, usually 10 to 20 verses a day in ranked order, starting with the easiest, working all the way through second Maccabees, which is some of the <laughs> toughest stuff you can find in there. So so I would recommend that if you don't know where to start and it's a huge corpus, it's kind of intimidating to have these two tomes sitting on your desk. Uh, start. Actually, you, it's best to start at the beginning. Genesis, the, the Pentateuch, is some of the easiest, most manageable. Oh. So is Second Chronicles. Um, in terms of if you've got a decent grasp of New Testament Greek, you can dip pretty much right in there and feel mostly at home. Mm. And, well, I, and I would add, there's one thing that I had a, have a, a class that I teach here uh, that deals with this and um, where I, I assign uh, mass. I think they end up reading about 50 different chapters within the Septuagint corpus uh, during, the, during this class, and we talk about all kinds of different things, and it's kind of a seminar class. And uh, just to kind of annotate what, what Will's saying, what was, and these are all folks that have taken um, all essentially all the Greek that we offer. And what was really interesting this past semester is uh, one, one student in particular who his Greek wasn't super strong. And by the end of the semester, he was really uh, he, he would say that he really grew just in his basic understanding of Greek. But one thing that was really cool for him, having only ever really read a little bit of Romans, and a little bit of Galatians, uh, which is what we might do for like a readings course here. Uh, I had him read extensive portions of Exodus and Leviticus, particularly kind of, you know, Day of, Day of Atonement stuff and that kind of thing. And it was so interesting when he would come to class because he was reading atonement vocabulary and, you know, hilasterion, or he was, oh, which is uh, the sort of mercy seat slash propitiation thing. He was reading all this cultic sacrificial language. And he's like, now Romans 3 and Hebrews makes so much more sense. Mm. By going back to Exodus and Leviticus, we're going back to Genesis 15 and reading it in Greek, which destabilizes you because it's not familiar. Like you read it in English and it's the same thing you've read for a long time, right? You read it in Greek and it forces you to take a closer look. And he's like, wow, I see all of this in such sort of 3D now. It was really exciting for him to say, wow, okay, now I can understand what Paul's getting at even more clearly than I could sort of mediate it through English. And so that 
just go, like, like we'll say, going back to the Pentateuch is actually a really valuable place to start because it's so influential, uh, both for the Old Testament, but also for the New Testament. You're going to be exposed to not only familiar stories, which helps, but also you're going to start to see the use of language in a way that's going to start to really open up uh, a lot of scripture for you. Uh, just seeing all of these, uh, all of this wording that now you realize, oh, wait a second, that's, that's a quotation in Romans or that's a quotation in the Gospels, what have you. And it starts to really connect a lot of dots for you. So that, that for many, I think is really exciting when they start doing that. Mm. Well, you've worked on this amazing project. It's taken four years. It's produced over 3,000 pages of text. Really heavy duty, highbrow, but accessible stuff. What are you going to do next? <laughs> Uh, take a vacation. That's <laughs> uh, a good, good question, Greg. You go ahead. Uh, well, I was, you know, it's it's been interesting, you know, to work with Will. I think we both have a very similar uh, kind of work style, and that's actually really been a a blessing to have a, a partner that you uh, work well with. And so we actually already have uh, three, essentially three projects uh, following on to some of this stuff. None of which we can actually share details about yet, just for because uh, the publisher doesn't want us to. But some follow-on things, uh, some things related to vocabulary, some things related to uh, some other Septuagint stuff. So uh, we are actually already in the thick of working on some new things together, and some, one of which will be announced soon, and then the others will follow on in a couple of years. So, um, so at least in terms of our our partnership, there's uh, more to come, which is exciting, and. Uh, I know, I mean, Will obviously has a ton of Septuagint stuff he's working on, and then, you know, I'll I'll continue to dabble as a New Testament interloper, I suppose. Um, (laughs) Good. Well, listen, Greg and Will, thanks very much for your time today. We've taken up a lot of your time, but it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, Thank you for producing this amazing edition, Septuaginta Reader's Edition, just published by Hendrickson and the German Bible Society in two volumes. Um, Greg Lanier and William Ross, thank you very much. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you. And thanks everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. 